Hello, you're listening to the Dwell on Truth show. I'm Brenton Powers. If you're listening on KSCO, it is 8 a.m. Time to get up and get ready for church. And I hope you are blessed as you listen to the Dwell on Truth teachings through the book of Romans. So let's open our Bibles and begin reading Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's Romans 5, verse 1 through 2. Now let's begin our verse-by-verse study through this section to discover what God said, what He means, and how it applies to our lives. First of all, we notice in Romans 5, 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, let's pause there, this word therefore points us back to what Paul has been saying in the previous four chapters about being justified by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, or our own goodness. It's a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Since we've already gone through Romans chapter 1 through 4, I'm hoping that you understand and have received justification by faith. It means that God has declared us righteous. And if that is the case, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and your trust is in Him to justify you before God, then what? What does that mean? What are all the implications of being justified by faith? That's what Paul begins to describe in Romans chapter 5. So he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So notice the first result of being justified. The result is we have peace with God. We are no longer His enemies. We saw in Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20, how we had become God's enemies. We were in trouble with God because we have broken His law, either outwardly or in our minds or in our hearts. By not doing what we should have done or doing what we shouldn't have done, we rebelled against God. And that rebellion is sin. Sin is rebellion against God. And God being holy cannot have peace with us as long as we are condemned. So that is why God sent his son Jesus to do something about this problem. Last time we read at the end of chapter 4, what Jesus did so that we can be justified and enjoy peace with God if we believe. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised from the dead for our justification. So being at peace with God is the result of our faith in Jesus dying to take away our sins and being raised to justify us. So now that there is no law condemning us, but we are justified by faith in Christ, God can look upon us in a different way, not as enemies, but as friends, not as rebels, because we've repented and we've been reconciled to God. But let me emphasize that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, apart from Jesus Christ as your Lord, you don't have peace with God and you're still his enemy. You have need to be reconciled with God through the one mediator that is Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So Jesus came down from heaven. God the Son became flesh that he might act as a mediator between man and God. 
And Jesus died for you and for me, taking the punishment for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God, removing the wall of hostility and bringing peace in our relationship with God, so that He is no longer against us. Maybe you didn't realize that God was against you. You were just enjoying your life, doing your own thing. You leave God alone. God leaves you alone. But you're like a person racing down the highway, not aware of the police in your rearview mirror. With our lights on and their sirens going, you were just enjoying the speed and your music and your life, but you were in trouble and you didn't know it until you looked back and saw, oh no, I've been breaking the law and now the authorities are after me. But Jesus stepped in and he was arrested instead of you. He took your place as he received the punishment that you deserved so that you could have peace with God. God is no longer against you if you believe in Jesus because all of his anger toward your sin was poured out on Jesus Christ. He took your sin and gave you his righteousness when you first put your faith and trust in him. This is the good news of the gospel, that by faith you are justified, you have peace with God, and going on to Romans 5 verse 2, through him you have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does Paul mean in verse 2 when he says, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand? Access is like an open door. And when we walk through the door, we're allowed into the grace of God. And you could stand there. You can be positioned there in the grace of God because you've entered through Jesus Christ. I'll read it again. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So justification is by faith. Peace with God is by faith. And access to the grace of God is also by faith. It's like you're invited to a party, but there's someone at the door checking to make sure that only the invited people are allowed in. Now, through Jesus, we're allowed to enter in to this place where God's love abounds and his favor toward us, his grace toward us is experienced. Not just anybody can walk through those doors, but you have to be invited by the master of the house. And Jesus, being the son of God, was full of grace and truth. And he invites us to come, come into his grace, the place of God's favor. And if you come through him, through faith, you are not only saved by grace, but you have access to stand in God's grace. And hopefully, you'll stay permanently in God's grace. Now, what is God's grace? What is the grace of God? Grace simply means God's unmerited favor. In other words, God's heart, that he is for you, that he not only loves you, but he likes you. You're in a place of favor by which God gives you, as a gift, everything that you need for life and godliness because he's for you. But access to that place is only given to those who have faith in Christ. It's only through Christ because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. As Peter preached in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no other name. And Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So it's through believing in Jesus, having true faith in him, that you're granted, you're given, you obtain this access, this open door into this 
wonderful grace of God in which we now stand, having been justified by faith. If only we Christians would remember that we stand in grace. We're not only saved by grace, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. For the most part, we are clear that we're saved by grace, but we also continue in our relationship with God through grace. And we can be assured that God loves us and He likes us and He's for us. Having entered in with His favor, we continue in His favor as we continue to trust in Christ. We don't have to perform and do works in order to please God. We trust in Christ and we let Him work in us. And we could stand there and abide and continue and persevere in God's grace. You can enjoy God without fear of Him condemning you or kicking you out. Because all the while, Christ is not only your Savior, but your Lord. The price has been paid so that you're no longer guilty, but you're justified and even more declared righteous. So God has no reason to be against you. And Romans 5.2 goes on to say, And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Yes, rejoice. I say it again. Rejoice. If you have been justified, have peace with God, and have access to grace, then you can rejoice. That means have joy. Enjoy God. Have a positive perspective of your relationship with God. It's good now. What do we rejoice in? He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking, but it's a confident assurance of the things that God is going to do for us. And this hope that we rejoice in is in the glory of God. I rejoice that one day I'm going to see Jesus Christ face to face, and he's no longer going to be veiled in a perishable body. He's in a glorified body, and he will be revealed in glory when he comes again. But I haven't seen him yet. I'm looking forward to seeing him and his glorious face and experience his glorious presence like never. Ever before. Now, God is with us always. Jesus said, I'm with you to the end of the age, and I rejoice in that. But I have even more hope for the future because either when I die or when Jesus raptures the church, I'm going to be taken up to heaven and not only see his glory, the glory of God, but the Bible says when we see him, we will be like him. We will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Perishable will put on imperishable. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Oh, rejoice, Christians, in the hope of glory. In Colossians, Paul says that Christ in us is the hope of glory. Is Christ dwelling in you? Have you received Jesus as the hope of glory? He is our Savior. He is our hope. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul will say, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As far as God sees you, from the eternal perspective, it's as good as done. Having been justified, you shall be glorified. So rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
Going on to Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. That was Romans 5, verse 3 through 5. So let's continue our study, looking specifically at what is the result of our justification. In other words, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, and God counts us just as if we've never sinned, then what is the result besides being able to rejoice in the hope of glory. Well, in verse 3, he says, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, let's stop there. This is a little difficult to understand. It's easy to rejoice knowing that my eternal destiny is going to be in the presence of God's glory with great joy. That's a great hope. But what about now? What about the suffering we have to endure in this life, in this fallen world? How can we rejoice in that? Paul answers that question by saying, We rejoice in our suffering sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So how can we handle and how can we even rejoice in our sufferings? It has to do with what we know. Did you know that our suffering as Christians actually produces something good? It's not all bad to suffer. In fact, there's much good that God wants to bring about through suffering in our lives. What does suffering produce? Paul says it produces endurance, or in other English translations, patience. The ability to endure suffering can only be learned by suffering. If you're never tested with suffering, if you never experience any suffering, then your tolerance for pain will be very low. I remember when I was a little child, if I got a little paper cut, I would cry so loud, you would think my arm was cut off. But then I would see my dad get a cut, and he didn't cry. I wondered, how did he not cry? That looks more painful than what I had. Well, he was mature. He had experienced suffering. And a little cut, even though it was painful, it became not a big deal. And at other times, when he was teaching me how to play tennis, he gave me hard things to do. And some of the exercises were painful. Having to run across the court, back and forth, it made me tired. It made my muscles sore. But in order to become a better tennis player, there was suffering involved. In sports, they often use this saying, no pain, no gain, which means you can't build up your muscles and your endurance unless you push yourself, unless you are pushed to your limits. And so it's true in sports that suffering produces endurance. You can't run a marathon if you've been sitting on the couch the whole time. So also it's true in the Christian walk. It will be hard to run the long race of the Christian life if you're never pushed to the point of suffering. So knowing that suffering as a Christian produces perseverance, we can rejoice in that suffering because a little pain can bring a lot of gain. But it doesn't stop with just growing in endurance, but endurance produces something good too. Paul says, and endurance produces character. Endurance produces character. Again, let's use the sports analogy. Being able to run a a long race, for some people, it shapes their character, their identity. They're more confident in who they are because they know from experience what they're capable of. But even more as Christians, 
though bodily exercise is of a little profit, the Bible says, godliness is profitable for all things, both this life and the life to come. So as we learn endurance in our Christian walk, we learn how to pray longer. We learn how to spend time studying the Bible without getting tired. We learn how to take insults from the non-Christian world. As that endurance increases, that produces a Christ-like character in our lives. Isn't that something to rejoice in? Knowing that our identity as Christians is becoming clearer? The Bible says God has predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ. That means that God is working in our character to make us more like Jesus. And he uses suffering. That leads to endurance. And he uses the endurance to produce character. And we can rejoice in this process. But the process doesn't end there. Paul is continuing the thought that character produces something good, too. What does character produce? Romans 5, 4 says, and character produces hope. Hope. Character produces hope. What is hope? Hope is the confident expectation of the good that is coming to us in the future. As Christians, we have a great hope. Our hope is in the promise that Jesus Christ will give us life from the dead and that we will be with him forever. But hope is not something that we just experience for the future. Hope is something we can experience right now. Although I haven't seen Jesus with my eyes yet, I know that I will, but I can experience God on another level. I can experience His Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart. This is a more subjective experience that the Bible talks about here in Romans 5, verse 5. I love this verse. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Why isn't this hope that God gives us a disappointing kind of hope? Because it's not only for the future what's going to happen in the next life. This is a hope that endures, a hope that changes our character today, a hope that we can feel on an emotional level. The heart is the place of our emotions, our desires, and the deepest place that God can touch. And since as believers in Christ, we have been justified by faith, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God put his Holy Spirit in us. Notice how Romans 5, 5 says that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You know, not every human being has God's Spirit living in him. But if you are a true Christian who believes in the gospel that Jesus died for your sins, and rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. God counts your faith as righteousness, and he gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. This is what the Bible teaches. Also in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 4.30 And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The seal in old times was a way of showing who owned some property. God places his seal upon us. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ and his blood that paid for our sins, he redeemed us. He purchased us. He paid our ransom so that we can be free, but not free to serve ourselves, but we're free to serve him and to serve one another. So the Holy Spirit 
Paul says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who Jesus promised to send into the world after he ascended back into heaven. As believers, we have a special relationship with the Holy Spirit. He comes to dwell in us. As Jesus said to his disciples, he is with you and he shall be in you. And so when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, he begins to do a work. Having saved us, he begins to sanctify us, to make us holy, to set us apart for the things of God. He gives us assurance that we're saved, and he gives us hope that he will complete the work that he started in us. And so going back to Romans chapter 5, verse 5, we learn another one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our life. It says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God. How much love is given to us? Well, it's poured out. It's not trickled out. It's not just dripping out. It's poured out abundantly like a waterfall. God's love flows through the Holy Spirit into our hearts, and it causes us to not be ashamed. I know that God loves me, not just because Jesus demonstrated God's love on the cross, which he did, it's a great love, but because the Holy Spirit in me reminds me of how much he loves me, and he enlightens my eyes so that I can see the unseen. Right now, God loves me, and he loves you. And if you're a Christian, you've received the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, saying, I love you. Jesus loves you. God the Father loves you. And he's telling you, whether you truly believe in him or not, he's telling you where you stand before God. He convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, so you can be convinced of what those three things are. And he comforts believers with the knowledge of God's love and with the experience of God's love. Now notice Paul says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. Has been poured is in the past tense. Having been justified by faith, God's love has been poured into our hearts. You know, God's act of justifying a sinner is an act of love. God's act of giving the Holy Spirit to a new believer is an act of love. God's act of using suffering to produce character and hope in our lives is an act of love. So the next time you're suffering, or if you're suffering right now, remember, God loves you. If you're a Christian, you can rejoice in your sufferings, knowing that it's all part of God's plan to conform you to the image of Christ and to make the hope of his glory even that much more joyful and hopeful for you. Because ultimately, your life as a Christian is not about this world and everything that's going on around you and how you're feeling. Your life is about the glory of God. How can I live to please him? How can I serve his purposes? How has God made me to be a witness of him to the world? That's our heart as Christians. We want to be used by God, and we won't be ashamed of our hope as a Christian. We do not need to be ashamed because we have hope, but we can boast in the Lord. In Romans 5, verse 6 through 8, Paul is answering the question, how did God demonstrate his love for us? What makes God's love greater than human love? And what is true love? 
We're going to study Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. So let's open our Bibles and read Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. In these verses, the Apostle Paul is reminding Christians about the great love of God for us. In verse 5, we saw that God's love has been poured into our our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We'll focus on how God's love was demonstrated for us. It says in verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in this section, Paul is answering the question, how did God demonstrate his love for us? What kind of love does God have for us? And what is true love? What does it look like? The Greek word for love here is agape. That is a love that is affectionate, benevolent, charitable, dear, it's the love that Paul defined in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, a love that is patient, that's kind, that is not self-seeking. This is God's kind of love, and it's different from the kind of love that you have been taught through Hollywood romantic films. That's more of an emotional or sexual kind of love. But this agape love is true love. It's not based on feelings or the beauty or worth of the person that you love. God demonstrated his love for us not when we became good people, but while we were yet sinners. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and we could do nothing, we could offer God nothing, we were disgusting to him, yet this God who is holy is a God of love, and he loved us not because of what we are or who we are, but because of what he is and who he is. His love is so great, he doesn't just love the lovable, he loves what we would consider unlovable, because ultimately none of us have loved God until he loved us. First John says that we love him because he first loved us. First John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If anyone is lovable, it is God himself because of his goodness and kindness and beauty and truth. But we, his creation, have failed to love him as he deserves. Yet he loves us in a way that we don't deserve. God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. There is nothing you can say or do that can make God stop loving you. In fact, he loved you when you were at your worst, when you were fighting against him, kicking and screaming and cursing and blaspheming his holy name. He is a God of justice, but he is also a God of love. His love is not a wishy-washy love. It's a love that is consistent, that upholds what is right. God loves what is good, but he hates what is evil. He hates the sin, but miracles of miracles, he loves the sinner. What a great love God has for us. If you stop for a minute and think of what we deserve from God, namely his wrath and his anger, it is hard to imagine how he at the same time can love us and can take the punishment that we deserve so that we can be with him. But that is how great the love of God is. As we see in our text, Romans 5, verse 6 through 8, it was while we were still weak, yes, weak meaning powerless, unable to do anything for 
God. It was then, just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, we know this was 2,000 years ago, and those of us who are alive now didn't yet exist. Look at it from God's standpoint. God sees everything, past, present, and future, from outside of time. He knows what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen, all as if it's already been done. So from God's perspective, Christ entered human history to live and to die at just the right time, when there was nothing humanity could do, when through all of Israel's history, it was evident that man can do nothing to save himself from his sinful condition. That's when Christ entered, as the rescuer, as the hero of the story. And the way that he rescued us was by dying for us. Who did Christ die for? It says, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, Jesus didn't pay the ultimate price for the ultimate reward. He didn't die for those who deserve glory. He didn't give his life because our lives are more precious than his. He died for us because he loved us. He didn't want us to perish, but we deserved to perish. The wages of sin is death. We didn't earn Christ dying for our sins, but that great price was what it took to redeem us from our curse. The godly one had to die for the ungodly in order to save the ungodly from the inevitable future of damnation and judgment and condemnation under the wrath of God. Now consider how much greater this love is than the love of the world. Paul in verse 7 of Romans chapter 5 compares the love of people to the love of God. In verse 8, he says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. In other words, very rarely will anyone die for someone who is considered good. You might be willing to give your life for someone who's worthy, like a small child who is just so innocent in your eyes and walks out in front of a bus and you have that opportunity and a moment of heroism, you rush out and you push the child out of the way and get hit by the bus yourself. And you are motivated to do that, maybe because of the sparkle in the eye of that beautiful child and thinking of the great future that they have still ahead of them. But you may be an older person and you don't have that many years of your life left anyway. And in that brief moment of considering your life or their life, you chose to lay down your life so that they can have a longer life. That happens sometimes. But most of the time, let's be honest, we're so concerned about our own lives that we would much rather for others to die than for us. That's how small our love is for people. And it's only a love for those who we deem lovable. But would you give your life for an old, dirty, homeless, and foul criminal? Would you, at 33 years old, be willing to step in the place of someone who is on death row, who is going to be capitally punished? Would you take their place, although they deserve to die for their crimes, and you don't? Would you step in to save them from what they deserve, and to take what you don't deserve? What kind of love would that require? In Romans 5, 8, it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, those last four words can only truly be appreciated if we understand the depths of our sin. Those four words, Christ died for us. They will not seem like the ultimate words of love unless we see the ultimate depravity of man. In other words, unless we see ourselves as utterly sinful, then we won't truly appreciate and worship Jesus for his great love that he's lavished upon us. Because then we would think that, well, I'm worth it, you see. Of course Jesus died for me. (laughs) That's such an arrogant thing to say. But no, God's love is what's great, not us. You see, it takes more love to love someone who is less worthy of love. If we deserved to be saved, then it would no longer be love that compelled Christ 
to die for us. It would have been duty. But you see, it was God's grace and God's love that overcomes our worth. The Bible says, mercy triumphs over judgment. God is a God of justice. Justice must be done. But even more, God prefers to demonstrate his mercy and his love. By not giving us what we deserve, that's love. But in order to stay just, he himself had to take the punishment that we deserve. So God is both loving and just. And that's why Christ died. To satisfy himself in his love and his justice, he paid the price that was required. But he did it for us. Have you ever realized that? That Christ died for you? Oh, I remember when I was 17, and it must have been the Holy Spirit opening my eyes to how great God's love is for me. I realized he loved me so much, and he didn't want to leave me in my sinful, lost state. He was willing to give his life for me, even if no one else received him. He would have still died for me. When I heard that, I broke down in tears. But it was tears of joy and tears of gratitude. I so appreciated the price that he paid, and I knew I could never repay him. It made me want to give my life and more, to dedicate all that I am to him. It made me want to love God, seeing that he loved me so much. Have you had that revelation of God's perfect love for you? Oh, it's such a healing thing. And it's so objectively obvious there on the cross, where Jesus shed his blood. And we can give thanks to God that he demonstrated his love by dying on the cross. Ultimately, we are thankful and will never stop worshiping Jesus for the fact that he suffered and died for us. But that is only a demonstration of his love that he has in his heart for us. And in the ages to come, it says in Ephesians, in the ages to come, he will reveal to us the exceeding greatness of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Have you seen the love of God objectively in the cross of Christ and in the resurrection and in the reconciliation and in the justification and in the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ to you who believe? So have you experienced the love of God? If you have, rejoice. Rejoice in God. If you haven't experienced these things subjectively, you can by surrendering your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. Trust in his shed blood for you and in his resurrection to save you from the wrath of God, to reconcile you so that you'll no longer be his enemy, but his friend. Be reconciled to God. Today, call upon the Lord and you shall be saved. Tell him that you trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for you. Confess your sins to him and ask him to cleanse you from all unrighteousness and to justify you so that you can enjoy him forever. I'm Brenton Powers. Thank you for listening, and we'll continue our study through the book of Romans.
Beyond Truth is kindly sponsored by Top Grade Paving. And from Santa Cruz, said on Yelp, Robert and his crew did a great job on our private road. What I loved about working with Robert was his attention to communication and follow through. We have a private road with a lot of different parties involved, and he was patient and dealt with the ups and downs of trying to keep all parties happy. He kept us informed of how the process would work and then got each area done on time. The main paving on a steep section of our road is perfect, and the separate patching, the two speed bumps they installed, and paving on the three private drives were all done with a minimum of disruption and were completed ahead of schedule. Add this to the quality of work and the fairness of price, and you have a winning combination. If you need paving, Robert and crew will get the job done right. Schedule now before he gets too busy as the word spreads. More information is at topgradepaving.com or call Robert at 408-455-8723. That's 408-455-8723. And thank you, Robert, for sponsoring Dwell on Truth. In Romans 5, verse 9 through 11, Paul is expounding upon the love of God and the results of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. So let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5, and we'll start reading in verse 9. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans 5, verse 9 through 11, is about a Christian's life in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And in context, the Apostle Paul has been describing the great love that God has for us. And he's expounding upon the amazing results of being justified by Jesus. The results of what Jesus has done for us. So in Romans 5 verse 9, speaking to Christians, Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. In the King James Version, Romans 5 9 starts out, Much more than. You know, that would be a good title for today's message. Because Paul is building upon what God has already done in the life of Christians. And he reminds us of what God is doing and what God is going to do for those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ for our salvation. And today we're going to focus on three aspects of that salvation, or three tenses of our salvation, being the past, the present, and the future. The promise in Romans 5.9 is, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So Paul is saying that there's much more salvation than just how much God has saved us from our past. In the Bible, we learn that Jesus gives us salvation in not only the past, not just one time, but the present and the future. Because he is our Savior, having been saved from our guilt. Paul calls it being justified, having been justified. That means that God has declared us innocent and even righteous because we've trusted in the blood of Christ to cleanse us. So having been justified or having been saved from our guilt, God will also save us from God's wrath against our sin. He says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So Jesus saved you in the past through faith. That's Ephesians 2, 8. By grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. 
So that's past tense. But does the Bible teach that we are being saved in the present tense? Absolutely. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says that the word of the cross is the power of God to us who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 15.2 says that we are being saved by the gospel. If you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. That's a present tense salvation. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved. God is saving us right now. As we hold on to him by faith, he's also saving us from the sins of our present, sometimes keeping us from sinning completely, delivering us from temptation, and sometimes forgiving our sins that we've committed today. Have you asked for forgiveness today? Are you trusting in Jesus to save you today? But that's the good news. If he was willing to love you while you are still a sinner, while you are still an enemy of God, then how much more are we being saved and will we be saved if we continue to believe in Jesus? The answer is much more. There is much more salvation that Jesus provides for us, not only through his death for our sin, but through his resurrection. It's the basis for our life right now with God. Thirdly, there is a future tense of salvation. We shall be saved. And so in Romans 5, verse 9 and 10, he repeats that we shall be saved. There is a future tense. As the Bible teaches in Acts chapter 15, verse 11, Peter says, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We will be saved. And 1 Peter 1, 5 says that we are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So God saves us now by keeping us through his power, and he will reveal an even greater salvation in the last time, in the future, in the end of the world, when he judges. We will be saved by faith in Christ, as Peter also says in 1 Peter 1.9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. That's the purpose of our faith, of trusting in Jesus Christ, to receive the salvation of our souls. That happened in the past, it happens in the present, and it happens in the future. As also Jude encourages us in his little book in verse 21, he says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So there's something we're waiting for, aren't we? We don't yet have all of the salvation that Jesus will provide. And Second Peter 3.8 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. So be thinking about your life, not in terms of just what's happening now or what happened to you in the past, but what God is going to do also in the future, now and forever. Amen? Jesus is our Savior, both now and forever. That encourages our life right now to grow in that grace that we've received. I want much more of God's grace. I want to know Jesus' saving power to the uttermost, as it says in Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. If you could see this glorious truth, it'll just expand your view of the greatness of our salvation. It starts with Jesus dying to save you from your guilt. That's first. And second, he rose from the dead. So shall he save you. He shall raise you from the dead. And since he lives forever, then he's always there to save you and he will give you eternal life. And that leads us to another result of having been saved and being saved and knowing that we will be saved. And that is, we have joy in God. We can enjoy him and rejoice in him 
him and boast in him, as Paul says in Romans 5, verse 11. And not only so, but we also joy in God. That's the King James Version. In the English Standard Version, it says, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In other words, the result of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and interceding at the right hand of God in the throne in heaven, the result of everything Jesus did for us is that we can first be justified and then be saved. Being reconciled by his death, we will be saved by his life. And then, even greater than that, greater than just our personal salvation, is the glory of God. You know, God doesn't save us just so that we can be saved. He saves us for his own glory. He saves us from what we deserve to give us a reward that we could never deserve. And that reward is more than just eternal life. What more can he give us than eternal life? Well, the greatest gift he can give us is himself. And that's what makes heaven so great, is that God is there. And we will be enjoying him forever and ever and ever. We will never get tired of God. He is beautiful. He is true. He is good. He is lovely. He is noble. He is holy. He is worthy. He is God. And because he saves us from the twistedness of sin, he straightens us out and shows us that we find our true joy in him, that true pleasure is found in right relationship with God and in an eternal relationship with God. And that relationship is not one of one enemy to another. This is a new relationship of friends. We've been reconciled to God so that we can be friends with him. We can have peace with him and enjoy that peace. No longer are we scared of God, but we rejoice in God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, all of this is made possible by receiving Jesus Christ as our Lord. Not just receiving him as Savior, but also as Lord. Because life is lived out best according to the master who made us. See, Jesus tells us what is right and what is wrong, not to kill our joy, but so that we may have joy. He tells us things are bad because it's bad for us. And he tells us what is good because it's good for us. He does everything for our good and for his glory. And so that is how we should orientate our perspective on life. And I know I'm not only justified, but I'm being saved right now. Thank you, Jesus. And not only am I being saved right now, but I shall be saved from any future punishment that God is going to give to the unbelieving world. And on that day, when God judges the world in righteousness, he will accept me because I've been justified, I've been saved, and I've been reconciled to God. I'm no longer his enemy, but I'm his servant. And he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord. But it won't be because I've served him that I earned heaven. It will be because Jesus served me by taking my sins upon himself, dying for them, shedding his blood, and three days later, conquering sin and death by rising from the dead. And he also saves us from God's wrath. Now we can have peace with God. Now we can know that he is not angry, but he he's pleased with us. That's what God's grace is all about. Have you experienced that saving grace of Jesus Christ? Are you now experiencing the saving power of God? Do you rejoice in the life that God has given you through the cross? Is that a fragrance of life to you who are being saved? Yes. Then rejoice in God because your salvation 
is great. His salvation is much more than we right now understand. In Romans 8 verse 23, Paul says that we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. (sighs) The older I get, the more I look forward to the day when God will save me from this body of death, from this mortal body. He will redeem not only my soul, but also my body in the resurrection. I will get a new glorified body, one that is fit for the heavens, one that is eternal, that I would dwell in with God in his presence and with the holy angels. Oh, how I look forward to that day when there will be no more weeping, nor death, nor pain, for the former things have passed away and all things will become new. So as we conclude this message and we think about what a great salvation it is, past, present, and future, that Jesus provides, let me encourage you not to neglect it. Don't set it aside. Don't walk away from the salvation that is in Jesus Christ alone. Because how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Hebrews 2, 3. So don't neglect your salvation. Enjoy it. Walk with God each day. Enjoy your Lord. Spend time with him today, won't you? Seek his face. Call upon his name and delight yourself in the Lord. Make that decision to rejoice in God through Jesus Christ. To think about not only your past and your present and your future, but to think about your Savior the one who shed his blood for you because he loves you. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. The one who rose from the dead victoriously and the one who is coming back to rule and to reign and to be with his people forever. Through him be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Good evening. My name's Brenton Powers. We're going to study Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through verse 14. So let's open our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 5 and begin reading in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Verse 21, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In context, the Apostle Paul is describing the results of being justified by faith in Jesus Christ, and Paul looks back to the very beginning to show us that Christ solves the problem that went wrong with the very first man. So in this passage of scripture, Romans 5 verse 12 through 21, we learn about the federal headship of Adam versus the federal headship of Christ. Federal headship is a theological term that describes the situation where one man makes a decision that affects everyone else under him. So one theologian, R.C. Sproul, said, just as a federal government has a 
chief spokesman who is the head of the nation, so Adam was the federal head of mankind. The word federal comes from the Latin word fide, meaning faith or trust, as in when several states make a trust or a compact to join together as one federation under a central government. And the word headship reflects how a body is organized under one head makes the decisions for the entire body. So federal headship is the biblical concept where one man did something that affected all who follow him. In our lives, we see when a father makes a bad decision, there's consequences for his children, and some decisions are bigger than other decisions. So how much more if we go back to our first father, the first man who lived on the earth, Adam. The Bible teaches that you are either in Adam or in Christ. So to understand this, we need to picture two columns. It's a little bit hard over the radio to illustrate this for you. So I want you to imagine in your head, or even write down on a piece of paper, two columns. Take a sheet of paper, draw a line straight down the middle. On the left column, write the first man, Adam. And in the top of the right column, write the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The word Adam means man. And 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls Jesus the last Adam. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Romans 5 isn't the only place where the Apostle Paul compares and contrasts Adam with Christ. He also contrasts Adam and Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But he concludes in verse 57 of 1 Corinthians 15, But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is your Lord, you are in Christ. God sees you in that second column. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ as Lord, then you are still in Adam, and you have received by inheritance the sinful nature that causes you to be sinful and guilty and condemned and mortal and separated from God. So it's only through faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you on the cross that brings you from the position of being under Adam to the position of being under Christ or in Christ, which is a very important phrase in the Bible. In Christ are all the heavenly blessings, but in Adam are all of the earthly curses. So if you want to be set free from the curse of sin and death, then come to Christ tonight. (laughs) So before I get carried away preaching the gospel, let's go through this section verse by verse, and let's make, first of all, a comparison. What does Adam have in common with Jesus? And after that, we'll make a contrast. How are Adam and Jesus different, and how do what they have done contrast, and how are the results of what they've done different in our lives? Which one's better? So Paul starts out speaking about Adam in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. So this takes us back to Genesis chapter 2, where sin entered the world. In other words, sin wasn't an inherent part of the world until the one man, Adam, allowed it to enter the world. Sin is rebellion against God. And God had told Adam, you can eat from any of the trees and enjoy the fruit of any of the trees in the garden except for one tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So when Adam decided to take that fruit, he knowingly rebelled against what God told him to do. He broke the one command that God had given him. And the result of sin entering the world was that death entered the world, as Paul said, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So you could summarize it this way. In Adam's fall, we fell all. When Adam became a sinner, 
sinner, all of his descendants became sinners. In Adam. At this point, you may be saying, thanks a lot, Adam. I wouldn't have chose to do that. But how do you know? You think that you're better than Adam? Actually, Adam was the one man that was created without a sinful nature, and yet you have been born with a sinful nature. That's why you sin. As this verse says, death came to all people because all sinned. So at this point, it's too late to say that you would make a different decision. Adam, our father, made the choice, as you have made many choices, to sin against God. And God being holy could not allow Adam, being less than perfect now, to abide in the garden. And he banned him from eating the of the tree of life because he didn't want him to be stuck in that sinful mortal body forever and ever. Now in Romans 5 verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. So that's the dark side. That's in Adam. But as it goes on to say in verse 14, that as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. There's a pattern here. This is the federal headship. And that affected all of humanity from then until now. So also, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel stands that through the one man, Jesus Christ, comes righteousness, justification, life, and grace. And this should result in our thanksgiving, abounding to God. Because when we realize how far we have fallen, we can truly appreciate how far Christ has come to lift us up and one day give us a heavenly glory that we can only imagine. Unfortunately, because of time, we'll have to stop here in Romans 5, and next time, we'll continue our study from Romans 5. God bless you, and thank you for listening to the Dwell on Truth teachings through the book of Romans. Mm-hmm.